You're listening to a classic business podcast as heard on Classic 1027. 1027. It's Friday, that means it's time for your view from the C-suite here on Classic Business, bringing you closer to South Africa's business leaders to find out what makes them tick, what keeps them up at night, and what keeps them going in such a brutally tough environment. My next guest is currently the longest-serving bank CEO in the country, having now served for roughly uh, 10 years in that position. He attended St. John's College in Harare and completed his schooling at Maritzburg College before graduating from uh, Natal University in 1987, where he received... The Jack Armstrong Award is uh, the best final year student. He concluded his two-year tenure as chairman of the Banking Association uh, of South Africa in June of this year and is currently the deputy chairman of Business Leadership South Africa. Michael William Thomas Brown, NetBank CEO. Mike, welcome to The View. Michael, thanks very much. Now, you come from a a family of uh, grey shoes, of bankers. Uh, Your dad was a banker. Your granddad was a banker. How did you get uh, involved in banking? Did you always know that it would be the career path that you would follow? Or did you have other passions that you were interested in? No, I definitely didn't know that was the career path I was was going to follow. At school, I was sort of formed between uh, accountant, lawyer or doctor ended up with some friends who were doing accountancy, so I kind of headed off in, in that direction. Quite enjoyed it. I hadn't done accounts at, at school. And then I think really before I into banking, was extremely fortunate. As I started articles with Deloitte and Touche in, in Durban, I was put into the financial services grouping and, and began auditing banks. So uh, very definitely more by good fortune than by design. And your first foray um, after leaving Deloitte and Touche, as it was called back then, was at NBS Treasury in the role of manager special projects. And you later then moved to NBS Corporate and you were instrumental in setting up the structured finance and private equity divisions within NBS Corporate, which uh, developed into really significant profit generators for the group. That was obviously before the likes of Basel made carrying that sort of capital far too expensive for banks. Do you think Basel has gone too far? Are banks being restricted from playing the sort of catalytic role that they could in economies due to overregulation? Yeah, so look, I think, you know, the unfortunate thing with things like, like Basel is it's, it is unfortunately very much a one-size-fits-all approach. And the South African banking system came through the global financial crisis in great shape. Actually, if you look at, at, at how resilient our financial sector is, now, in the great lockdown crisis, it's also been in great shape that, you know, we've had to adopt effectively the rules that apply to, to European banks. So I do think that there is scope for there to be some relaxation, uh, in particular areas like investment in, in technology and software. It's particularly onerous for banks to build large software platforms. It's a 100% deduction from capital. Whereas, you know, the likes of the fintechs, et cetera, that, that's not necessarily the case. So uh, pendulums always swing a little bit too far, and I'm sure the pendulum will start coming back again slowly. And uh, it is, at the end of the day, all about just ensuring that uh, the playing fields are, are are equal and level. Now, you led the, the merger of MBS Corporate and the Commercial Industrial Lending Division of BOE Private Bank, and were appointed as the, the Deputy MD of BOE Corporate and then MD of BOE Corporate. Uh, and NEDCOR's, I recall, the, the 8 billion rand takeover of BOE to create the country's largest banking group at the time, back in 2002. I think the assets were just uh, at around 240 or 250 billion. That's really a standout transaction. I recall it was awarded the Dealmakers Deal of the Year back in 2002, spearheaded by uh, then CEO Tom Boardman. What do you recall of that particular transaction? 
No, certainly I was, I was still pretty young at, at that time. So for me, it was an enormous experience to be involved in a transaction like that, uh, working alongside Tom Boardman then at, at, at BOE, Richard Loebscher, Michael Katz. So, so it was certainly an, an enormous experience and, and a turning point in my career because, as you said earlier, I, I started out at NDS uh, many years ago having left, left Deloitte and actually I haven't changed employers. NDS merged with uh, Boland Bank, all of that merged with BOE, and all of that got bought by Nedbank. So that's effectively how I ended up in the Nedbank stable today. Yeah, one one bank for life, so to speak. And uh, post the merger of BOE and uh, Nedbank back in uh, 2002-03, you were then appointed to the role of uh, MD for property and asset finance. And uh, you oversaw at the time a very complex four-way merger of the commercial and industrial property divisions of BOE, Nedbank, NIB, and Cape of Good Hope. Uh, and it really it was the fulcrum around which uh, Nedbank's uh, very well-known and respected property finance business uh, really emerged from that period. Um, what do you make of where we find ourselves currently in uh, in the property game? And uh, I think, you know, the one thing that investors are scratching their heads about is that uh, rising profits clearly don't necessarily reflect good strategic decision-making or the creation of long-term economic value. And we've certainly seen with a number of REITs going offshore, perhaps taking on a little bit too much debt, that um, that has led to some destruction of value. A lot of that was exposed by the pandemic. Uh, But obviously the boards, the management team, shareholders, uh, to some extent, all forgot that they're actually responsible or, or own businesses that um, uh, add value through an operating property strategy. Uh, you've got to look at the sector and ask yourself how it gets itself back on track. What are the lessons in all of this? Yeah, look, I think the, the key, there, there's different lessons for, for different, different REITs. Um, you know, some of them have actually successfully diversified offshore and for others it, it's been less successful. Uh, but, you know, I think the, the key here is that generally speaking, when, when times are good, you know, people probably gear up a little bit too much and, and you know, they don't have the required level of resilience when, when, when times are bad. So I think what you saw in particular was a huge sell-off in REITs, many of whom were owned by income funds. And as there was pressure on the underlying assets, more and more of that income coming off the underlying assets was effectively being used to repay debt and not being distributed to shareholders. And no income fund wants to hold an asset that's not producing any income. So you had, I believe, a disproportionate sell-off in the, in the stock. And clearly, while the underlying assets have decreased in value as um, you know, cap rates have gone up and, and escalations have come down, I think the decrease in REIT stock prices has been disproportionate uh, relative to the underlying assets that they own. And my next question was going to be, uh, the, the big question mark at the moment is uh, how to repair these balance sheets. Uh, the REITs are in discussions with, with Treasury and, uh, and, and SARS around uh, being given a special exemption due to COVID in terms of distributing their profits as they legislated to do in order to shore up balance sheets. Another school of thought uh, reckons that the REIT should go and uh, raise equity despite the, the fact that share prices are at a depressed level at this stage. Uh, what is your take on, on how, broadly speaking, the sector needs to approach uh, repairing those balance sheets? So, look, I'm sure inevitably in this environment over time there'll be some consolidation in the sector um, and, and that will create you know, some opportunities for, for people. 
but I think that the the approach of effectively retaining distributions and using those to shore up balance sheets uh, is better for shareholder value than having uh, deeply discounted rights offers off the current deeply discounted share prices. Um, in June, I think it was, of 2004, you were then appointed the CFO of Nedbank Group and uh, were then an integral part of the team under Tom Boardman, responsible for turning Nedbank uh, around at the time. What were some of the key ingredients in that turnaround? I, I assume that the decision was taken just never to buy a law firm again uh, at inflated prices. Yeah, I think everything's easy with, with hindsight. Um, but I think the key, the key decisions there were really around focusing on the banking franchise as the absolutely most important part of Medbank and that, you know, things like technology or technology investments were only of any consequence to the extent that they were supporting the banking franchise and that the banking franchise wasn't there to effectively fund investments in, in tech assets. And then perhaps I think the most, the most important thing was the enormous focus that was brought to the importance of culture and, and values in, in organization. And that is, is now really a hallmark in the business uh, and in its uh, sustainability, or sustainability lens, I should say, through which uh, it uh, conducts its business uh, and through which it invests. Uh, a strong believer is the bank in uh, things like the Sustainable Development Goals and ESG and uh, all of those uh, uh, principles of responsible investing. Now, in March 2009, you were then appointed chief executive designate to succeed Tom Boardman. He retired in uh, February of 2010, and you then assumed the mantle as, as chief executive. At the time, what did you see as the most important job of a CEO? And it's a, a double-barreled question. Has that changed over the last 10 years? I mean, I think, you know, without doubt, the most important job of the CEO is the custodian of the culture and values of the leadership group of any organization. And I don't think that's ever going to change. I think being the leader of the culture and values of the organization is your key role, because if you get that right, then there is such significant you know, downstreaming of, of how an organization mirrors those cultures, culture and values that inherent in that is your ability to create sustainability over long periods of time. Warren Buffett often says that the most important job of a CEO is capital allocation. He doesn't mention culture. Would you disagree? Yeah, I, I don't think that the CEO is sort of all-powerful and all-conquering and is going to you know, decide where every little piece of capital is going to be allocated. I think his job or her job is primarily to ensure that you have the right culture, values, and team, and in turn, as a consequence of that, um, allocate capital properly, um, you know, uh, manage the aspirations of your staff properly, deliver appropriate customer experiences. I think as soon as somebody says, you know, the, the most important job is one thing, mm. uh, I, I think that you, you're likely to, to get into challenges. But uh, who am I to, to question Mr. Buffett? <laughs> I think he, he clearly looks at it through one particular lens as well. Now, the various shareholders, stakeholders, uh, as we call them today, often have, uh, well, they have competing 
uh, interests. Uh, and I think uh, the, the challenge uh, very, very often for a CEO is to be mindful of all of those interests, especially in a country like South Africa with uh, the, the multicultural, um, social, uh, economic factors at play. Mike, uh, and, and turning now to the country and the centerpiece of the COVID economic response, uh, the Treasury Loan Guarantee Scheme, that has uh, so far failed to launch. Uh, part of the reason that I think most people don't quite understand it is that banks are the most highly geared entity in the world. They operate with a very thin sliver of capital. The rest is equity, so it's important to understand a bank's balance sheet. If a bank has a non-performing loan, it has to do a deal effectively 33 times bigger, roughly, to recoup the original loss. Uh, that's just the way banks are structured. And that's why getting the loss-sharing arrangement just right in terms of the scheme was always so critical to ensuring that it worked, that the capital went to those businesses that uh, so badly needed it. What would you like to see made more explicit in this arrangement uh, for the scheme to work better? You know, I might have a slightly different lens on, on you know, how the scheme is working. So firstly, I, I think, you know, so, so firstly, the, the total scheme itself, as contracted by all of the banks at the moment, is a total of 67 billion rand. So we keep hearing about this 200, but there is only 67 billion that has been contractually signed up for the loan guarantee scheme. And the bank's projections are that by the time we get to sort of early next year, we'll probably end up with it was a payout of about 25 billion of that of that 67, which is actually very much in line with the levels that you see of these schemes all over the world. And I, you know, I'd offer two key reasons for that. Firstly, was this loan guarantee scheme only really got going at the back end of May, and all of the South African banks were extremely proactive from March, April, and right through May in restructuring all of their client accounts, people who asked for cash flow relief, uh, they were given that. Um, I might have the numbers slightly incorrect, but I think 84% of all individuals and 95% of all businesses who asked for relief were given relief. So an enormous amount had been done before the scheme even kicked off. And then secondly, you know, for, for the balance, in an extraordinarily difficult economic environment with not a lot of forward vision, as to, as to when things might turn around in May, June, July, or were we going to get second waves, when were we going to go through various stages of lockdown, you know, most businessmen are not looking to take on more debt in that environment. So I would say those are probably the two reasons for the lower than expected take-up, is the business environment in general and the lack of appetite for debt, and then the extraordinary amount of work that the banks did off their own balance sheets before the scheme was launched. It's interesting to hear you say that, Mike, because uh, chatting to uh, a couple of uh, private equity practitioners and they're relaying their investing or portfolio company experience of the scheme, um, the, the experience seemed to be, I mean, for example, a, a company here said that uh, their bank declined them because they were told they don't need the capital yet. Um, and, and this company did experience major COVID disruption, but is obviously trading through. Luckily, had a reasonable balance sheet to make it through. But the facility is really meant to serve as a safety net for sudden shocks. And the company didn't want to borrow at a time when desperate, uh, rather secure the facility before it's needed. And there are other examples of um, uh, banks sticking to criteria that seem to be not in line with the spirit, refusing to lend without executive directors giving personal surety, for example, uh, and elsewhere as well. Uh, and if you look at the BASA numbers, uh, it seems that uh, two-thirds of applicants have been rejected so far. 
So it does look like it's still a, a risk tolerance issue from the banks. I suppose there would certainly be incidents and, and you need to go into the exact details of each one. But if you look at the key reasons for rejections, certainly in, in our portfolio, the majority of the rejections took place because the client was not in good standing and up-to-date pre-COVID. So this was only a scheme that was put in place for people who were up-to-date, either at, at February or, or at December. Or, in fact, uh, people had access to other facilities. And uh, I do know that, obviously, in private equity, those other facilities might uh, rest uh, with the private equity investor as well. So it's a complicated uh, situation. The problem, though, is if trust is lost in the scheme, entrepreneurs will do what entrepreneurs do. They'll cut costs. Um, they, they won't go and ask uh, the, the bank for a facility. And, and by cutting costs, that means cutting jobs effectively and overheads. And uh, that's the last thing that this economy needs. Just uh, from an economic perspective, Mike, uh, we've had the uh, the president's reconstruction and recovery plan announced last week to much fanfare. We've got the mini budget uh, coming up next week. So two very important um, milestones or markers on this uh, long road to recovery. Where do we find ourselves as a country right now? Are you confident that we are going to be able to turn the situation around as our debt to GDP gets close to 100% of the medium term? So Michael, just, just quickly coming back to the loan guarantee scheme, I think you know, the other thing that's really important for people to understand is that, is that this isn't, isn't free money. So to the extent that, that you know, all $200 billion eventually got paid away, and let's just assume that those businesses couldn't pay it back, the South African taxpayer would effectively have to fund uh, 180 odd, odd billion of that. And, and that's certainly not in any of the budget projections that, that you speak about. So it, there is a double-edged sword here. Um, and, and certainly if you look at the country right now, you know, we are in an extraordinarily difficult fiscal position. We're going to get more insight into that in the medium term in the medium term budget statement but you know we really have kicked the can down the road for as long as humanly possible in terms of structural reform and we are in last chance saloon and unless we are able to take those difficult decisions to enable business to operate more freely and grow and as a consequence grow the tax base and as a consequence of that bring down those debt-to-GDP ratios, we're going to be in an extraordinarily difficult situation. What are those decisions that still need to be taken that, uh, that weren't taken in the reconstruction and recovery plan, for example? I think the reconstruction and recovery plan covered them well. I think it could have had more in it about freeing up regulation and red tape for, for business. But the key challenge for South Africa is now to get on and implement the plan. Implementation was uh, given a brief mention, uh, Operation Vulundlela, but I uh, I agree with you there that uh, it was a missed opportunity to uh, give uh, clearer specifics, KPIs on implementation and dates and and, uh, all the rest of it, so that the president uh, can ensure that everyone is held to account uh, amongst his cabinet. Uh, As you say, we've kicked the can down the road uh, for as long as humanly possible. On that note, what keeps you awake at night um, as, a, as a CEO of one of the largest banks in, in South Africa? Uh, what is the one issue um, that uh, keeps you up, that uh, makes you wake up with cold sweats about the country? Yeah, I think it's the ongoing lack of growth and the weak educational outcomes, which in turn drive 
unacceptably high levels of unemployment, which inevitably drive you know, dislocation in the social compact. That social compact has been mentioned quite a lot by the president uh, in terms of the NEDLAC compacting that's uh, taken place so far. Does that mean that you are, as a member of Business Leadership South Africa, I'm sure you're part of these discussions at NEDLAC, that you are confident, Mike, uh, that this compact will deliver us uh, from this stalemate that seems to have pervaded uh, over the last decade at least? Well, I think it has all of the components that can deliver higher levels of growth were incorporated in, in the NEDLAC document and, and the president's speech. But as I said earlier, our key risk right now is our inability to implement, not our inability to plan. And then just as uh, we reach the end of our time, Mike, so much more that I'd still love to, to ask you, specifically um, uh, around ESCOM. Just one briefly uh, around ESCOM. The CEO, um, Andre de Reiter, has been on a, a roadshow of late, engaging investors, talking to the media. Uh, he seems to uh, firmly believe that uh, the, the future rests on um, clearly following through and implementing the plan to unbundle ESCOM to allow private producers to come into the market, to liberalize the energy market. But none of that really deals with the elephant in the room, and that is ESCOM's balance sheet. What would you like to see happen? How can we deal with that 480-odd billion rand elephant that just keeps on growing? It's an extraordinarily difficult, difficult problem. I was part of a webinar earlier this week where Andre was, was speaking, and I think He's certainly doing all of the right things and making more progress than many of the, the CEOs before him. I do think that the um, creation of you know, uh, a separate generation distribution and transmission entities does over time enable some of the, the generation that we have now to be re-geared and effectively um, you know, uh, create some, some equity to, to enable the pay down of some debt on that. Or eventually the government is going to have effectively, unfortunately, no option but to put real equity into ESCOM. Yeah, that, that decision will be imposed uh, upon it. Uh, lastly, Mike, looking back on your career, um, uh, a storied career in, in finance and uh, as a, a captain of industry, are there any regrets, any experiences that, with the benefit of hindsight, uh, you you go back and change? In the round, no. Uh, I, you know, I think I've been remarkably fortunate in, in my journey so far. There's always some things that you, you could have done differently, so... You know, when we were looking to, to grow our businesses into Central and West Africa, we bought uh, a 20% stake in ETI, I think, in 2014 or, or 2015. Thankfully, we didn't invest, you know, a particularly large amount of money to be able to put our overall franchise at, at risk. But with the benefit of hindsight, our timing, our timing certainly was, was particularly poor. You know, the oil price was $90, $100 a barrel. And, you know, when that, when that fell, that's been a really difficult investment for us. So... If I look back, I'd, I'd rather have done that at a very different time. And I think uh, probably many offshore transactions, outbound M&A, that uh, South African management teams uh, wish as well that they could have reversed over the last 10 years. So certainly not an isolated incident, uh, but also the result of a low-growth economy. So you can't blame South African management teams for that. Mike, uh, a great pleasure chatting to you, a real privilege uh, sharing uh, some insights into your uh, career and uh, into where we find ourselves as a country. Let's certainly hope uh, that the finance minister can find uh, a rather uh, large rabbit to pull out of that hat next week. Take care. Thank you, everybody.
That was Mike Brown, the CEO of Nedbank, sharing his view from the C-suite with us here on Classic Business.